Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my guest is Charles Fan. Uh, if you were listening last week, Charles was on the show, and his story was so fascinating. We hardly got through his childhood and young adulthood before we had to stop. And so this is the first time ever we're doing two parts to this amazing story, amazing chef. For those of you who didn't listen, Charles is the chef owner of the Slanted Door and other uh, restaurants. He was uh, the best chef of California and chosen by the James Beard Foundation in 2004. He's been an outstanding chef, that means the top chef in America, a finalist for the James Beard Foundation. He his, uh, his the Slanted Door this year in 2004 13 was also a finalist in Outstanding Restaurant, Best Restaurant in America. He's, been, he's in the Who's Who of Food and Beverage this year at the IACP Awards. He won uh, the Best Book for Vietnamese Home Cooking. And uh, it, the Slanted Door is the number three most popular restaurant in the Bay Area, according to Zaget. So it's an incredible privilege to sit here with you, Charles, today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. And uh, we're in the beautiful, we're just in this beautiful private dining room. Um, so I, I want to just continue on the story. And so here you are, a young guy in, in San Francisco, and right. you're a busboy? Uh, Dad was uh, uh, a janitor for a restaurant, got me a job busing table. So we were poor, so I, I had to start working at age of 15. Um, and English pub, nightclub, continental cuisine. So I was exposed to a lot of restaurants. Um, and I wanted to be a potter, but I ended up being, going to architectural school. So my dad was less Where upset. Where did you get exposed to pottery? Was, was I, in high school. I, I, just, I think uh, I, at the end of the day, I like to st- do stuff with my hand. Uh-huh. I'm an artist. I, I don't like to read and write. And um, so, um, but I, I do remember you know, watching Jacques Papin uh, and, and, and Lydia on TV, and I, every time I cut an onion, I remember Jack showing you how to cut an onion. Zen master and, of technique. Right, and <laughs> and I was exposed to food at a young age. Um, in high school, I was drinking espresso and in you know '79, and this is be- before Starbucks and and having Calistoga water. Uh, people were teasing me why I would buy water. Instead of buying. In so, those days, yeah, yeah, no one bought water. No. So I was exposed to it, and mom and dad has two jobs, so I always taking care of the family uh, meal. And also, I was kind of interested in getting the family similar to this culture, so I would spend days and uh, like cook the entire Thanksgiving dinner uh, with Gourmet Magazine, and, and it would take me four days and <laughs> read read the thing like a month ahead, and then. Did you have okay? So your family was from Vietnam. You hadn't 
grown up with Thanksgiving dinners. No. So did you, what was the taste going through your mind when you were looking at that gourmet magazine? Did you, did you have a Western palate? Did you have an Eastern palate? Did you modify it and have rice at the dinner? Um, Well, I I didn't. How was it? How did your... Well, I did not. Um, I was always interested in a Western palate. We grew up in a little town that had a lot of French restaurants. So we were exposed to more French food than most kids. There's a little town called Dalat where uh, everybody vacationed. Um, so I was more interested in a Western palate. And, but mom says, just make sure you have some rice. You know, I want mashed potatoes. <laughs> and I, I want to do the whole thing uh, genuine to the American culture. But, but uh, they say, just don't mess around. Just make sure you, there's some rice back there, you know. And they'll, they'll have one or two backup dishes. But I try to we do We have a lot of Italians in my family. We have pasta on Thanksgiving So, so we, we would have, uh, um, and I, I would start just start cooking yeah. at, at, gosh, you know, 15, 16. Um, I, I would do everything at home on the Wedgwood stove. I remember just love, you know, subscribe to Gourmet Magazine, reading every page and um and I didn't realize how much I love cooking. And I always thought I was going to be an architect and cooking was something you do every day at home. Um, and, and that's your spare time. Um, so, and after college and trying new careers in the garment business, selling software. But I think through that time and just being like my father, being an entrepreneur, I, I saw that opportunity. And... and my observation was, why can't there be a modern Vietnamese restaurant? Why can't be a classical Vietnamese food, but modern setting? Um, and also, at the time, living in Chinatown, there weren't any Vietnamese, very small Vietnamese community here. Even though our parents are uh, ethnically Chinese, but we were longing for the Vietnamese food. And it was just definitely different. And that's something I grew up with. I, I knew the Chinese. And... Um, and here in Chinatown, there were just, you know, all Chinese restaurants. There hardly ever any Vietnamese restaurant. And that was the, uh, it was in my head for 10 years. And I remember sitting at Zuni and saying, you know, I can imagine this is a Vietnamese restaurant, um, but in this, but not serving Mediterranean food. Um, so when you were thinking of uh, uh, Vietnamese food, were you thinking authentic or your style? Or I always, your, I, yeah, my, my thing is always about authenticity. I, mean, I, I, I come to my philosophy towards food is really the food has to have a story. It has to have a history. Uh, I don't like to make things up. And I, I think, I think a, uh, the role of a chef is really a craft that you're perfecting a craft, but you don't make up stuff. Uh, I don't think you just randomly make up flavor. I mean, there's some chefs do that, and I appreciate that. But for me, it's about bringing a piece of Vietnam to you, bringing a piece of um, history and culture, and this is what they like. This is how they eat it. And I find that fascinating because then it gives you a lot more confidence as to how these things are put together. I mean, you still got to get good at the craft of cooking. You still can't burn that chicken. You still got to get make it tender. And, and flavorful or making that fried chicken skin perfectly crispy. But, but there's certain ethos or way of making southern fried chicken. There's certain way a Vietnamese would compose their meal in the sequence of meal. So 
that it's always been my belief and and for a long time you you see uh young people chef would mentor somebody uh, a chef an old french guy or whatever then they go to france afterward and the french chef kick him out of the restaurant and make him go to france and i always believe in that system and and you know now today it's a little different and 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 you'll see chef are more technique driven um and technique versus what versus culture i mean specific culture they're less focused um i mean um you know restaurant like albuli or french laundry i i these are old, a lot of master making these things but but if you all you take is just the technique then then there's you know you can grab on they could do a, a japanese thing and the next course could be a spain so there's no cohesion as to the entirety of a meal of a culture so i would look beyond just just that one dish uh i i would not serve you uh, italian pasta and roll onto some spring roll in the next course like for me start to finish has to compose over the entire story this is a vietnamese dinner this is a summer vietnamese dinner or a summer italian dinner for that matter then or, or this is a unique uh let's say uh way of making a dumpling from the north of vietnam and it's got to be somewhat close you can't just for me like cross continent like for me i i i rather i, I especially in the restaurant i think you got to spend enough time to be an expert on some little part of something so people pay you money for it and for you just to kind of show off your technique and randomly uh, i think you're asking a lot so you have a natural vietnamese palate growing up in vietnam and coming from that culture how did your professional skills as a chef develop who were your for your major influences well, because there was no Vietnamese restaurant right. to hold well, that in, so obviously uh, you know I, obviously I, I'm not an exact duplicate of something you saw in Vietnam and through that even though I try really try to get a duplicate copy evidently uh, being in California and places like Zuni and Chapinese um, and chef here had had changed the way I think about food. Um for instance, you know, like if you classically um scallop dish and Chinese dish would be blanched in oil and with a sauce on top. And but I love the way chef here doing their scallop. They sear it and a little crispy and but but I didn't want a beer blanc. I I I wanted um um some other sauce so so i would incorporate their technique uh the cooking technique but still kind of keep majority of the recipe the flavor profile and and i but sometimes it could be the same dish i remember it would not serve a carpaccio because i didn't really like all the carpaccio i learned which is kind of like frozen fillet paper kind of mushy and it was just weren't some it looks beautiful it's red and it's with the cheese on top but and I remember eating at Paul Bertoli's restaurant um and he was cutting a, a London broil hand cut um weren't frozen pounded out it was just amazing and I knew exactly I'm going to serve my Vietnamese carpaccio on the next day because in Vietnam 
there's a section of town called Beef Seven Waves. One of the waves is a carpaccio with a Vietnamese herb and uh, lemon and salt and oil. So, so once you, once I think I got all the components and the quality that, I, that I'm looking for, then the dishes launch. And a lot of these are just classically things in my head, but until I know that it meets certain standard, if I can find a new trick or, or find a better ingredient that enhances the dish, then then I will take it to the next level. Then I'll serve it. And and sometimes I might not I literally did not serve that dish in my head for two or three years. Because it's just like eh, just not there, you know? Like the mushy capache where you kind of scrape it off your plate with your spoon. And it kind of glued to the spoon. I mean, you, we all had those carpaccio. Yeah. It's because they froze the bloody meat, and yeah. the meat doesn't know where the meat come from. And and um, and I remember eating uh, at uh, Jeremiah restaurant for nine ninety five for a chicken at his cafe. Stars. The Star Cafe. Yeah. You know, I didn't have money to pay for Star, yeah. but it was nine fifty or nine ninety five for a t- half a chicken for ten bucks. And I remember eating at that corrugated room. And it was so amazing, that chicken of his. Um, it's all those little things that I developed over the year. So it's not particular. Uh, and the palate and the combination, what tastes good. And, and I think that's how you become a chef. you got to really expand and, and get all that in. Is it and, mainly by eating in yes, other you great have, restaurants? I believe you have to learn how to eat first before you learn how to cook. If you don't know how to eat, there's no... At any one time, how many dishes are swirling in your head that haven't manifested itself on a table yet? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we. Um, I'm always interested in food, and every time I travel, like all my traveling, like I, I don't bother to see, you know, go to, to a mausoleum or look at a, <laughs> some high tower class there. I plan all my meal, all my, yeah. um, all my travel just around like what food am I going to eat? Am so where I gonna... are some of the where are some of your favorite eating places to travel? Oh, um, Japan is really big. Um, I, I, we were just talking about our family going to South Carolina next week, and my daughter started like what are we doing there what is it you know what's over there I think I really don't know let's just rice actually yeah and I think I I, I think you gotta go and learn about culture you know like I don't care if they have uh, although they got a lot of golf courses uh are you a big golfer I think I'm hoping to be but no (laughs) I, I don't play enough um so I, I think, like, understanding, seeing a locale, seeing the, the food, it's just, like, for me, you learn so much. Uh, on a recent trip, just a buying trip to Kentucky, and, and you, once you get on the ground, you realize, oh, I could have just had all these samples sent to me, but no, spending five days in Kentucky and learning about bourbon and learning all the news on it, start, you start picking up on, oh, my God, you know, like, there's story that you're getting, like, a second batch of story by being there. They're not telling you everything, and as we all know, you know, bourbon in Kentucky, there's a lot of stories, and there are a lot of things that you kind of have to read between the lines to read it. Um, and, and tasting, you know, uh, the Kentucky ham, there's only one guy left, still curing out in the shed, you know, not using walk-in, uh, and still following, you know, December to February, coal and salt, and they put in these hot shed in the summer, and once they reduce twenty three percent in weight, and they pull it in, and um, and it, so I. What, no, so you're saying you're doing authentic Vietnamese food, but you're getting a lot of uh, other 
ethnic or regional influences. So how does that affect your crafting dishes now for your restaurants? Well, I, I, um, it, it's, a, it's always been a hard balance. And, and I remember, like the first time, I, I think the older you get and more confident you do, then you'll just do how you saw it. Um, maybe back in Vietnam. I remember doing the first curry chicken. Everybody say, just do boneless. You know, the white people's not going to like it with bone in. And, and I got chicken, so I do boneless curry chicken. It's one of the worst curry chicken I ever made. <laughs> and I had not made it. I think I made it the first year. It was just this loppy brown, you know, yellow sauce and, and with all these pieces of, uh, you know, breast meat and thigh meat boneless. And see, for me, you know, when the money is on the line, your life's on the line, and you get a little chicken and a little scare, and you don't do that. <laughs> you get a little boneless yeah. chicken. Yeah. And, uh, and since then, I refuse to do that. And I, I got and finally one day, and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I got to do my bone and chicken. It doesn't taste like curry chicken. And, and we do them, we serve them. And, uh, Tell me, what does the bone do? For the chicken. Well, you hold the texture, hold the meat together. Uh, every culture cut their meat differently, you know. Um, the Asian hack it with a big cleaver, so their shrapnel is little pieces of bone broken. They don't care. I mean, they, they, they can sort it out with their tongue, you know. If you can't sort it out, they say you got a dumb tongue, so you're going to choke. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so there have to this sort of like no mercy policy. It's just like, hey, there's food. You don't want to eat it. You can't figure out how to eat it. That's your problem. Um, and um, and I think, you know, you're not going to win everybody. And and and, uh, and like today, no. Now we get into some catering. We're doing a museum. We're doing a bat mitzvah. And this family say, my kid can't eat fried chicken with bone in it. I would like. Are you kidding? Like Kentucky Fried Chicken have bone in it, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and with you know, a bone, it they can't eat with a bone. Yeah, in because they think the kid's gonna, gonna choke. choke on yeah, a bone. I mean, and I don't know, they might not have dumb, dumb tongue. Yeah, or they don't have insurance policy <laughs> for the bar mitzvah. That's right. Uh, That's right. Uh, okay, well, we're gonna take a little break here, and we're gonna come right back. You're listening to Chef's Story with Charles Van. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years, so it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story. I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my guest is Charles Fan of the Slanted Door, and we're sitting in San Francisco in his great restaurant, and we're just talking about bones and chickens. Um, well, so let me get back to this authenticity because uh, we're in. You know, we're in San Francisco, and it's not just Vietnamese authenticity here. It's doing Italian cooking here or any other kind of cooking. That's one thing. How authentic can it be in another country? And the second question is, you're such a talented chef. If you were in Vietnam, 
I think you would be bringing the food to another level anyway. So you're not doing old-fashioned or traditional. You're doing Charles Fenn's uh, interpretation. So, for example, did you bring that Kentucky ham back with you, and did you start using it in your dishes? Yes. Um, that was just uh, something like that. It was more about celebrating Kentucky, and we would serve it more like, you know, um, um, shave ham. You know, a lot of Southerners don't eat ham that way. They they boil it, they fry it. Um, but in Vietnam, they don't cure the ham that way. Well, so exactly. It's, it's going to change well, the taste. Well, I, I kind of bridge all of it. I, I would not bring Kentucky ham into Sandor. I just happened to open up Southern Fried Chicken Place. So, they, <laughs> so there's a venue for that. So I wouldn't... Um, uh, but, but we have a fried chicken over there that we're incorporating a more Asian Peking duck technique that I made the skin... That is crispy. I don't use the milk butter, uh, buttermilk uh, batter, and so on. So sometimes every chef, uh, uh, inevitably, if there's a signature dish, often they'll they'll put their spin on it and their 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 trick and technique. Uh, I remember uh, hearing Marcus uh, Samuelson talk about his fried chicken, uh, and, and obviously we have to put our stamp on certain one or two dishes if that's a signature dish. But um, but back back to Sandor is inevitably you're going to be influenced by the locale, the the, the ingredients, the, the product you get from here. You need to adjust your dishes. But when authentic, authentic or not, I, I think that's the question: is do you serve that really stinky shrimp paste on a dish? And some say, oh, that's kind of authentic. Yeah, those are some of the more shock factor. But sometimes could it be as simple as if, if the entire 7 billion population of China think that Peking duck should be crispy skin, then you need to follow that tradition. You need, if you're going to call it Peking duck, then, then everybody, then it's like saying we're going to play soccer or not football. Right. Right? Right. And we're playing soccer, not American football. Right. Uh, then, yeah, then the, the soccer ball. Right. right. The Peking duck has to be crispy skin. You cannot serve a Peking duck like a duck confit leg. Right. Because then that's not Peking duck to me. Right. Uh, so if you're telling me a Peking duck, then I have certain expectation. I go to every, I go to Shanghai, Beijing, and I learn how they get their skin crispy. And I had a one of wonderful Peking duck in London and across the street from the Queensway uh, um, you know uh, train station because the Chinese guy ended up using a English duck that was perfect for that recipe and sometimes you'll see the, the, the certain quality and in fact I got the tip from Thailand because there's so many people from my wife from Thailand they go to London and they say oh the best Peking duck funny it is it doesn't have to be you know, in China, you could find, but again, back to the philosophy, do you, uh, where do you draw the line, you know, do you, uh, in, in, in London, they, they still make the duck same way, they just happen to serve the duck uh, boneless or bone in, you, so you can pay a little bit more, they'll take the whole duck boneless, cook already, uh, and, and I, for me, that's completely authentic, that's just sheer genius on business. You can charge 10 bucks more by deboning a duck from them and keep the bone to make stock because now the customer doesn't get the bloody bone. Uh, you should do that here. Uh, 
And, and I remember serving Hainan chicken, and, and it was one of the classic dishes from Asia. And we struck out every time. Every time we served, nobody wants it. And, I, and, and, and well, uh, it's a boiled chicken, and the chicken is not crispy. It's blanched in hot water. It's in the sauce. And uh, they serve in the Singapore Airlines, very popular in Asia. And, and you can't say just the Chinese likes them. I mean, I have seen American people that lived in Asia a long time ask for that dish. But again, I believe here, because the weather is so cold and the chicken's blanched and sitting room temperature, room temperature is 68 degrees, it gets coagulated and chilling. So it doesn't have the same effect eating that chicken at a 90 degrees. Yeah. So, you know, I think the only way to do it here would be we serve that in a sauna somewhere. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> right. But sometimes, you know, you gotta start paying attention to all the little detail. And, but at the same time, I still preach that, and I still serve it to my customer. I find that it's enlightening because you might not win this year, but you might win five years from now because the, the needles always follow. continue yeah. to change. Yeah. And, more and, and for me, uh, it's, the buying into the story and culture, it's very, like for me, people just need to understand that. If you don't want to go this, that's fine. If you want to just learn technique and get your, your, your equipment and make, uh, uh, make all the stuff, I mean, whether or not it's cocktail, whether or not it's a salad, whether or not it's, you know, uh, a roast goose, all that has to come from somewhere and has some sort of background. And for me, I, I just happen to be in the school that I like to have a story. I, if I know this goose is Henry the Third, this is the first time they serve. I find it fascinating. Right. And 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 you see already next restaurant in Chicago, they they creating a theme. Now it's now it's talking about story. So tell me about the uh, cooks that you hire to come work in your restaurant. Because you have a certain philosophy, it's not tech, just technique about the food, it's the story, it's the culture. How do you hire here, and who are the people working here? Oh, it's... Um, uh, and it, how do they get... You know, do you know Robert Vivian in Paris? He, he owns Tandin. It's a Michelin-starred Vietnamese restaurant. It was the first non-French restaurant that got a Michelin star. And he told me he, couldn't, he would never hire a Westerner in his kitchen they don't have a palate. I, I don't think. I, I mean, I, I only look for people with passion. Uh, I can't teach you passion. Um, and here, you know, this, this line of work doesn't pay very well, so you got young people who's willing, who believe in, in the way the food is. And, and, and I find it very, uh, a couple of years ago, I took some of them back to Vietnam. And, and they start to get it once you show them Vietnam. And half the chef I have is non-Vietnamese. When we have Vietnamese, we have Chinese. We have my lead, one of my lead wok guy is my second dishwasher 18 years ago. He's from um, uh, the Yucatan. So, um, no, I mean, palate's a palate. You can't fool the tongue. We all have the same chemistry. Um, and it's just training, you know, and... Um, so do you do you have to train them in your um, style? I mean, there's not cooking schools for Vietnamese. No, that's that's hard. So like the walk, the walk, uh, uh, the the walk is the biggest problem. No one know how to stir fry, and and I using my architectural background, I take away a lot of the moving parts. So a traditional Chinese walk, I would have you know sugar, soy sauce, garlic, everything, and they just assemble. We 
you know, have a stir-fry sauce. So we assemble all that. So because our volume, we can, you know, continue to let somebody you know, scoop a little sugar. If he's a little jacked up on coffee, he's like yeah. too much, and he won't taste the food, and you're not going to have consistency. Right. So this become uh, a machine. Um, I engineer um, classic caramel sauce, and I repackage it. I redo it in bulk, and I can do it in, in the environment and have the least amount of variable. And after and now that here comes the businessman out yeah. here and, so and the entrepreneur. How we, many restaurants do you have now and the we, bars? We have five or six. I don't know. Five or six. Yeah. So when did the chef part sort of morph into, uh, well, a chef always has to be a business person, especially well, when you're in a for, restaurant. But when did it morph into we're going to open other restaurants and now your day is not... Okay. Well, for me, it's always about doing a project. I, I don't see this as a chef. Or, I mean, like, it's just me having one project. And I come in here, I would notice somebody just cleaned the window. I notice the room's a little warm right now. I notice all these things, and I'm trained to be that way. And I can spot a dish missing green onion or garnish, like, from, you know, 10 feet away, because I'm visually, I'm very good at that. And, and... Role of a chef and owner is you are creating this experience. You need to take care of everything. You need to take care, um, um, uh, and and you have the experience. Yesterday at the Academy of Science, we we're running a you know seven eight million dollar lunch business, and just for lunch. And at one point it was twelve million dollar, um, and you're pumping a lot of volume. And and one of my chefs had the bolognese cold, and I said, look. Not in the summertime. You cannot have bolognese cold. You can't reheat that bolognese cold because it takes another minute, and you don't have another minute. You got, you know, twenty deep line. Uh, so, so it's those little things. They didn't go from winter to summer. When a winter time, when you don't have a lot of business, you want to make sure your food is cold and and safe, and you can just heat it up. And you have a few minutes. But when you have a twenty people line, and and I think we all do that. At the end of the day. That's how I approach it: solving the real, the, the 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 tactical problem, how to get that food perfectly beautiful execution uh, system, and and you got to think about that. You don't overload the walk station having too many walk items. We call that manual engineering, and you got to understand. Who taught you that? Just by doing it, and, and it's just by you know. I used to be a busser, and these guy can't get their food out, and just start standing and waiting and. And half the guy standing around doing nothing. The other guy was like panicking. So, uh, and you have to have that balance. Of so you, you know, as an architect, you're incredibly organized, and you understand foundations. And Architecture building. help you break down, like separate problem. I mean, that's the thing is you need to don't come here and freak out. You need to say, all right, what's happening here? I always tell my staff just like, why, why is it we can't get that dish out? You know. I remember I'm doing a whole fish and a mesquite grill on a piece of cast iron pan. And they're like, no, it's just too much. I said, well, let's just try it. Let's just try it. This is not, I'm not doing heart surgery where I'm going to kill somebody. And, you know, all they do is going to have a bad meal or they get the meals a little late. Or they have and, a dumb tongue. Yeah. And you just got to do it and, and, and push that envelope and never. And, and I think because I didn't have kitchen experience, like I don't come to the table and saying um, uh, how 
things should be. be and and there's a book that I read in school, really changed the way I think. It's called Pattern Language in Berkeley, and it's really about wrote by seven professor talking about how the human behavior, uh, like how people walk from A to B to the shortest point. So you design this plaza. If you don't want this 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 line cut across your lawn, then don't you know you got to channel the road around it. I mean, you've seen that on golf course all the time. It's like, don't just walk across that beautiful lawn of yours, and now the, all the grass is dead, and you're going to have this line in your lawn that you never want. And, and restaurants are like that. Uh, and we design, we're constantly looking at our system. We designed an academy of science, and we thought, oh, we're going to do the, we went to Google, we went to Apple, and look at the cafeteria. Well, we forgot. Now, we don't have the same single person coming in every day. Uh, we so have a family. Tell us about the academy. Who, who are the people? How big is the restaurant? Oh, the Academy of Science is, is a giant museum. We've got about 6,000 square food service cafeteria. And the idea was to have all these different food stations using food to educate kids. So I don't have hamburger. I don't have uh, pizza. This is, I would have Vietnamese spring roll and Moroccan chicken taco. So all these different stations. And originally we designed it just like a uh, Google cafeteria. Right. But if you look a little deeper, Google have the same employee coming every day. They know where the food is. And, and it's really busy and they don't have a lot of room. Well, in the museum, you have this family of five, six, and they, they come in packed. They don't come in individual. And they can't go out on their own to get their stuff. So, so everything's just a mess. So we have to create this single line that get them down the trough. Then they pick the food and move the food fast. And it's all those little details that create that experience. So it's more like a smorgasbord. You put all the all the different well, things together, we, or did you keep no, the we, rack and we, we, we and keep all the station, but we move all the hot station at the end so the oh. food doesn't get cold. They're picking up in the front. Oh. And, we just, and we make all the station move very fast. So everybody just go down the line, and you grab your salad. You can... Skip the sandwich. You can go to Moroccan chicken. Then you get your taco. What, what appealed to you to do a, a volume restaurant like that, a cafeteria? That was something my wife and I was really interested in changing the way children eat. And I, I, I hate the notion of kids' menu. You know, if I become any kind of mayor or whatever, and I would make sure there's never be allowed to have kids' menu. Okay, we're going to take a break here, and we're going to come back and follow up on that. Listening to Chef Story, and today's guest is Charles Fan of the Slanted Door in in San Francisco. Tell us the names and the concepts behind all your restaurants right now in San Francisco. And, and we're well, Slanted Door, Slanted Door is a flagship um, at the Ferry Building. The, um, you know, full service with uh, cocktail and wine. Uh, we have a small little out the door to go concept. Uh, we have another out the door in the Pack Height. Um, and hard water, it's fairly new. It's a bar. Right? Uh, it, it's a bar and southern food and um, uh, full restaurant, uh, 49 seat. We have um, probably the largest bourbon collection in California, oh. and, and we've been. I, I'm, I'm, and I'm diving into the story just as well on the bourbon, and, and we have the biggest bourbon collection. We started doing it about two years ago. Um, crazy enough, the year I got nominated for best chef. Julian won 
the Spirit Award, uh, Van Winkle, and and that's the year he cut me off from Pappy because the company was sold, um, and we were we were buying Pappy. That was a well bourbon for ten years. We were ahead of everybody, all the stuff, and we didn't really know. Uh, we didn't have the fifteen. We we had the twelve year old at our, at our well, um, so that was a hard water. We recently got involved with the SF Jazz Center. Oh, really? Uh, in what capacity? What uh, we're, we're doing all the catering. We're, we have a full-blown catering company called Green Cap Catering. So we do all catering, uh, partly to subsidize all my charity work that I go on the road and go cooking. So when I went to your place, um, the, you know, our catering team was with me and set yes. it up. Right. Um, and uh, the SF Jazz, we, we run a restaurant called South there, a southern uh, concept, uh, also a southern concept. And uh, I kind of really uh, fell in love with the director, what he's doing. Uh, SF Jazz has been around 30 years, and finally they get a standalone building, uh, wonderful venue, very small restaurant, not very big. Um, and lastly, we have um, uh, Heaven's, Heaven's Dog, that it's under renovation. Um, we have a little water damage, and and we're gonna probably reconcept that that restaurant. Um, How so? Are you gonna let people know? Uh, actually, we're gonna probably change the name. Uh, Heaven's Dog was a Chinese concept with bar program, and we're gonna um, we ripped it out. We redoing the dining room, and we're gonna do an English restaurant. English? Why? You're gonna have the Peking duck. No, uh, we're going to have steak and kidney pie. Steak? What What in the world? Why in the world would make you do an English restaurant? Well, remember I told you my dad was at an English pub. That was yes. my first restaurant. Again, I think that there's not enough people to pay attention to this story, the English story. Mm-hmm. And you got guys go back to France and learn about France and learn about Spain and Italy. Mm-hmm. But no one go to England and learn cooking. And there I could think, be a reason for that, Charles. Yeah, but but I think there, I've seen enough. There's enough good stuff. Actually, I went to a British university, and I lived there for four years. And it's they have some of the worst food in the world and some of the best food in the world. Right. They're Jersey Royal t- uh, potatoes and, and cottage think, shrimps. And, and I think it's, yeah. it's, it's really up to the chef to make sure you pick out the good one. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 you know. And, and I think it's a... I've just come to the point in my life right now, like, I need a little challenge. I need something new. Uh, Is it going to be a pub type, like a gastro pub? Well, I don't... It, it's a modern setting. The, the building is modern. So, um, I will think of, like... Well, St. John's and... and, and, and yeah. the, uh, think of, like... Uh, how should I say, like... Uh, if you think of Delfina as a, a, a Italian here locally... But in the modern setting, we're going to do the same thing. You know, we, we did the same thing with hard, uh, hard water. Mm-hmm. We're taking a classical cuisine, but we, because we have all the connection and buying the shrimp from New Orleans, buying the flounder from the Gulf, um, it doesn't take a whole lot to work on the recipe and getting it right mm-hmm. and getting that meat right, getting the technique right, because the, the sourcing, it's already done mm-hmm. because we're not going to cook anything if we don't know where it comes from, from the vegetable, the, you know. So we're doing a lot of reading. There's like piles and piles of cookbook. We're testing every every day and, and getting it, it, it right, you know, and getting that puff pastry right on all those pie because the English seems to wrap everything in puff pastry. Cornish uh, pasties. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
uh, and 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 getting you know in this town there's not a perfect prime rib house and oh that's what I was I grew up you know I yes. grew up you know having that Yorkshire pudding yeah. uh, having that truffle yeah. uh, dessert and you know for me just seeing an opportunity and also it give you a, a target line and you, you go after it you you you, you know you know, so I tell me, how do you find time for the charity work? And, and uh, we were getting on this before, and I like to go back to children's food. Where, what, is, what is it that makes you so compelled to do it? You do so much charity. Well, um, I, I think we get asked a lot. Um, when I go out to New York and see you and, and do these things, I learn a lot. I pick up a lot of things. Uh, but it, it makes you feel good. But also, you, you do learn a lot. You connect with your peers. And I would just, uh, in Cleveland, uh, with Wolfgang, and, you know, um, the year, year before I did a roast pick, everybody asked about, you know, where, where you done that roast pick again. And this year I did Vietnamese crepe, and everybody's just running away from it. And I say, what do you not like, the Vietnamese or the crepe? You know, which one you don't like? And they say, oh, I don't know. You know. That don't sound a little weird. Uh, really? And, well, yeah, it's not a big seller. Um, it's just, I thought it was really good. But anyway. Uh, well, the, uh, rice. It's made from rice and turmeric. Yeah. Little shrimp and it's perfect. It's one of the favorite street food. You wrap with a little lettuce. Oh, um, uh, yeah, Cleveland's a little. Uh, They're not, not not there yet. Yeah, uh, I shouldn't say that. Um, a few Cleveland guys are not there yet. Not everybody. Um, the the cherry. I think um, yesterday I, I was I'm, I I went to a function for the hospice care Zen Center. And I personally saw my father die in these places. They're horrible. They're, they're just no fun. And I came up with this thought that's like, if you're dying, if you want a matzo ball soup, and, and you want it, like, you want to have it in, in a diner bowl too, maybe. You know, remind your childhood or that chocolate cake in a perfect English china. Not in a plastic bowl. In a hospital, they do that to you. And, and I was talking to B.J. B. Miller, and he was a director at the Zen's Hospital. He, he said, that's what we want to do. We want to, when we're going to help people die in this beautiful art setting. Maybe we're going to build this building overlooking the skyline of San Francisco and have a chef back there make you anything you want before you go. And he started doing that at the Zen Center. And half the time, the patient couldn't even eat it. But they make them smile. They can smell it. Like, for me, that's another side of this line of work that makes it exciting because it comes gets back to the same thing why your customer is happy uh, it's just that the, the the charity work you don't get actual cash but I'm sure you get some Buddha point and some other yeah. things <laughs> that's <laughs> probably, probably more important more important <laughs> um, but 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 it, it's um, a lot of chef do it and, and day in day what, out what, it, what worries you about the future of food in this country um, you know, like I was in China, like how, and Vietnam, and there's Spanish tapas, and you know, the the the, the city, the world is getting so global, and sometimes, you know, I, I kind of imagine like hundred years from now, you really, you don't know where the line's going to be. If there won't be any line left because and the authenticity goes with that. Well, then, and I'm sure that 
my food, what I know about Vietnamese food, 75, 100 years, wasn't like 200 years ago. So I'm sure it's going to change. You know, my Vietnamese food has some French bent to it because the French were there for 50, 60 years. And 100 years before that, I'm sure some Vietnamese would not think of Vietnamese food. And I'm, I'm sure it's fine, but I think it's different just because of how, you know, uh, you can get wasabi grown in Portland. Not as good as I think. I haven't really had good Portland wasabi, but not only the... the, the the culture chain, but they literally moving plant species across continent, and um, and I just hope that my kid and my grandkid will have really good food, and I'm sure we'll take on a different thing. But I'm worried a little, little bit about that, just because. And what excites you most about the future of food? Um, they're a lot of good customer. I mean, like you can be in the business and 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 do these things. Obviously, it's good. I mean, I can eat a lot of things and retire and just go around the world and eat. But as a business, I think people are, um, and they're tough. You know, we recently opened um, a Chinese restaurant called the Wuhan General Store, and, and that didn't take on, and 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 it's and that makes it much harder in this business. And here I am, you know, my parents are Chinese, and I knew exactly what I want to do with that Chinese restaurant. I, I needed porridge and, 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 and noodle at, at, till midnight in the Mission District, and I remember it, it didn't fly. Here I am, opening a southern fried restaurant. You can't get a reservation in there. It's <laughs> like packed. So uh, the target is always moving, and, and it is exciting, you know. It just tells that you got to keep doing it because there's no you're, surefire. You're just incredible. You're so fascinating. Now an English restaurant. Well, we've done it again. We've finished another show. I mean, I could talk to you forever. And I, better yet, come and eat. Come and eat. His food is divine. I find myself at that. Uh, he has a great bar at Slanted Door. You can come in and just sit if you can find a seat. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me. This and. I can't wait. In five years, I know we're going to have a lot more stories. Oh, God. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Uh, Shout out to Jack Inslee and Robin Cohen, my producers, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.